This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Last Sunday, I thought Steve did an outstanding job. He did uh, probably all the heavy lifting that, uh, so I just felt I didn't need to do any of it. Um, So all the heavy lifting theologically was done by Steve and Howard on Good Friday. We had a lovely, lovely kind of moment together with the guys at St. Andrew's URC, the same place the um, Alpha course is going to be held at, uh, where we had a time of celebrating dare I say, celebrating the death and crucifixion of Jesus and his death. Um, and the reason we, we call it Good Friday is, you know, the things we celebrate today, the, uh, the aspects of the story that make the, the story good is what we classically think of when we think of the story of the crucifixion. And... Um, so let's, let's just start by, you know the story, generally up until the point Jesus has been crucified and died. After stabbing Jesus in the heart with a spear to make sure he was dead, the separated blood and water was the sign that he was dead. And the soldiers allowed Jesus' body to then be taken down from the cross, and it was hastily bound up with a burial cloth. Um, Well, because the Sabbath was upon them. They didn't have time to properly prepare Jesus for the burial. And he's buried in the tomb of one of Jesus' followers who was a rich guy called Joseph of Arimathea. A large stone is placed in front of the tomb. And the Jews are so paranoid that Jesus' disciples are going to go and steal his body to try and fake a resurrection, that they petition Pilate to have a seal placed over the stone, a royal seal, and guards placed at the tomb. But as it stands, if that was it, if that was all there was to the story we never would have heard any more about Jesus of Nazareth. He would have been a man that uh, would have been a footnote in a history book, perhaps. Oh yeah, he was one of the pretenders, one of the fakes. And his his, uh, would-be Messiah followers would have been scattered to the four winds, never to be heard of again. But today, we join two and a half billion people. Mm. Two and a half billion people who celebrate Jesus, who celebrate his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into glory. It's all part of the wonderful story. And so we pick up our Easter story as two of Jesus' followers make their way to the tomb where Jesus is buried so that they can now properly anoint his body for burial. Remember, it was too close to the Sabbath. 
Now, after the Sabbath, it's the third day, it's the Sunday morning. Let's pick up the story. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10, and then 16 to 17. Sorry, 16 to 20. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. Isn't that the classic words of angels? They always start there. (laughs) Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I'm not surprised there's a combo. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I particularly like Matthew's account of this part of the story because he goes to extraordinary lengths. And I say extraordinary. He, if you were going to make up a story, this is not how you would make it up. He, he goes to extraordinary lengths to seemingly tell the truth of what happened and to give the reader space to process and to consider these facts that he painstakingly lies out. He's under no illusion that this account sounds fantastic, almost fictional. Earthquakes, lightning like angels descending, Roman guards lying on the floor as if dead, passed out. The Roman seal broken over the tomb entrance, which under normal circumstances, would have meant certain death for those who were in the area. An empty tomb where a dead man had been placed. And this previously dead Jesus then meets them on the way to go and tell the other disciples. I mean, this, this is a crazy story. Like within 18, 20 verses, that is, that is about as as it gets in Scripture. And Matthew knows it. And I'd like to draw out a couple of points from this account under two headings. 
what the empty tomb asks of us and what the empty tomb offers us. What the tomb asks of us, I, I think the way that the account is written is, is so telling. It's, Matthew wants us to wrestle with how crazy this is. He wants his readers to question it, to question how they feel about it, how they think about it. Matthew ends his gospel at verse 20. That's the end. And he wants to offer the reader an opportunity to resolve an answer to the question, how do you respond to the resurrected Jesus? How do you respond to the empty tomb? He begs the reader for a decisive conclusion because he he wants wholehearted faith or he wants well thought through and considered refusal. He wants you to walk away after reading this account going, yes, or no. Whilst we're still in the process of considering who Jesus is, he he offers us comfort in this passage that it is okay to consider it's one of the things, I think, one of the, the, the sad lies is that we think, hey, if you're, if you're doubting, you're struggling, that's not Christian. No, no, I think Matthew kindly, graciously reminds us that it's fine, it's good, it's healthy and proper and appropriate. In verse 17, we read about the response of Jesus' disciples upon seeing him. And of course, all of them jumped up going, yeah, we knew it. No, they didn't. Some of them doubted. Some of them doubted. Honestly, if Matthew and his friends were going to make up the story of the resurrection, then um, this would not be the way to do it. Um, This story would have got them murdered as well, and in fact it does. If they were going to try and make up a story, they would have made it a lot more plausible. The reality is people have died for lies, but they didn't know it. They thought they were believing a truth. And the difference between our story is that they knew the truth. They spoke it, they lived it, In fact, to the point of Matthew himself being impaled on a stake in Ethiopia. That's how much he lived and died, what he believed here. And today, as we consider the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, the encouragements of Matthew remain for us, for us who are followers and for those who are considering. How are we going to respond to the risen resurrected Jesus. The two responses we read about in verse 17 are what? Some fell at his feet and worshipped and others doubted. We've got these two responses. And 
you think, oh, why did they worship him? From sitting where we're sitting today, we just go, yeah, well, duh, of course they worshipped him. He's Jesus, he's God, we know this stuff. Consider this. The, the disciples had just seen Jesus be crucified to death. They buried him for the very thing that they are now worshipping for, for the claiming that he is God, that he is the Son of God. Surely, logic would dictate they want to distance themselves from him, not draw close and worship him. What had now changed since three days earlier? See, Jesus was filled with the Spirit. He'd done many, many amazing miracles, had he not. We know about these. We've read them. But so had one or two other really great prophets in the Old Testament. So, okay, maybe he's just a really great prophet. Jesus preached some awesome sermons. You know, let's think Sermon on the Mount. He taught some amazing, radical things that made people's hearts burn inside of them. But, you know, there were a couple of other good Torah teachers out there at the time. And, in fact, I, I, you know, Howard Kellett is sitting here with us. And we don't worship Howard or, you know, other Bible teachers. So, what was it that definitively changed for the disciples that proved to them that Jesus was not just good Bible teacher, prophet, that he was the Son of God. Yeah. He was the Messiah. Look, there's loads of great things. I, I think uh, four points I'd like to highlight as to why they now believed Jesus to be God and Messiah. First point, once they saw what Jesus had gone through to the cross on the cross and his death, they understood the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah needed to suffer and die for the sins of his people. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 600 years old, this is, by the time Jesus is born. And all of a sudden it starts making sense. Oh wow, the Messiah that they wrote about, this is him. Second point, they understood the scriptures that describe the resurrection of the Messiah Specifically, but also just the general uh, resurrection from the dead of all believers from the Old Testament. In Psalm 19, it's a bit of a veiled reference to the Holy One, the Messiah. Therefore, Psalm 16, 9 to 10, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Sheol, death, Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Hosea 13, 14, beautiful. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, 
Where is your sting? Okay, again, hundreds of years old, and all of a sudden these words come through freshly, powerfully for the disciples. It's Jesus! Jesus himself had explicitly foretold the method of his own death and that he would then resurrect from the dead. Matthew 20, 17 to 19. And as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. If I said that to you a couple of days before my death and that then happens, you'd be like, whoa, what's going on here? Jesus is the Son of God. And finally, Jesus... Resurrected from the dead (laughs) after suffering and dying exactly as he said he would. And you put together these evidences from the Old Testament and the life of Jesus. These four points kind of prove beyond a shadow of the doubt that Jesus was God and their Messiah, their Savior. So then when faced with a clear an obvious resurrection of Jesus in their midst. He immediately was more than just a friend back from the dead. He's not Lazarus. Hey, buddy, high fives. He was also not just a remarkable teacher or prophet or miracle worker back from the dead. He was Jesus, God, Messiah. In answering the question... What the empty tomb asked of them, many of them rightly responded by falling at his feet and worshipping him. But as we also read, some doubted. I think if you're, if you're a guest with us, you, you might even just be a regular God first to hear with us. And you're in this place of considering, doubting. You just feel, I'm just not secure or sure, I want to say you're in the right place because every day Christians are encouraged to make this decision afresh. Every day we we wrestle with the realities of it. And the encouragement from Matthew or from Jesus through Matthew to us is that it's okay to wrestle. It's okay to doubt. If you maybe are not a believer here, you clearly, you just, I, I'm, not, I'm not there yet, I don't believe in Jesus, it might be helpful to consider that it's not faith versus science or like what, what, your worldview, the worldview that you currently hold probably requires as much faith, if not more faith, than believing in Jesus. Especially the resurrected Messiah. The historical evidences alone are staggering. There's no such thing as an atheist. I, I know what, what you mean, but you know, I'm an atheist. But the reality is, you might not have faith in God, but you most certainly are putting your faith in something. 
And this morning is an invitation, I think, through Matthew, even um, as uh, Florence encouraged us, the, the Alpha Course, come, come and explore. Come and ask the questions. And if you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus, the same question holds true. Today, how are we going to respond to the risen Lord Jesus? Tomorrow, how are we going to respond to the risen Lord Jesus? Because Jesus stood in a room full of his friends, his disciples, his followers. Some worshipped, and yet some doubted. What Matthew wants to save us from, wants to prevent us from, is this. He wants to keep it binary. One or a zero. Yes or no. Black or white. He wants to close the door to the sort of gray, hazy, half-hearted, lukewarm, one leg in, one leg out type of Christianity that masquerades as genuine discipleship. Be hot, be cold, but don't sit in the middle. There's a good reason that the passage flows where it does. And we read it, and you might have thought, the Great Commission? What is that doing in there? This is Easter Sunday. There's a good reason it flows into verses 18 to 20. You can just imagine the scene. They're all trying to kind of process what on earth had just happened. The Jesus who was dead is now in their midst. The shock, the puzzlement. They're happy. They're confused. And in the midst of this chaos, Jesus doesn't seem to skip a beat as he lays down what's most important to him as the resurrected Lord. Namely, what genuine discipleship is and what genuine discipleship does. They are inseparable in the heart and the life of Jesus. And they are to be inseparable in the hearts and the lives of disciples. And Jesus commissions this group of disciples. Both, both those, that's the amazing thing. Both those who had fell down and worshipped and those who doubted, he commissions them. It's almost as if Jesus says, guys, hey, I, I get it. This is a lot to process. You've seen me conquer death. You've experienced now that all authority, everything, every ounce of power has been given to me in the heavens and the earth. I have conquered death. Those of you who thoughtfully say yes to be my followers... I want you to listen to this commission. I want you to have the passions that are mine. I want you to know that as you follow me, death might follow you too. It's not a Sunday club that you can just belong to. This is a group of people you're going to have to give your lives to, like I did. It's not even a gathering of those who just love singing and 
who love Jesus, because if that were true, if they really did, actions would follow their words. So for those who would follow me, Jesus says, go and make disciples in all the world and baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've taught you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that those who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. We know it. We love it. This is the visible reality of that. God's love through his son is awesome in its power and work in my life. But even in that time of Jesus' resurrection and his glory, in that moment where they're marveling at, at, at who he is and they're considering and they're, they're wrestling with the truth, he says, I want to take that truth that you've now seen, the truth, that, the power that raised me from the dead, and I want to take that love in you and through you to the ends of the earth. And Jesus just kindly speaks to worshiper and skeptic alike at that same time. And he gives them the same command and commission to make disciples as a response to the resurrected Jesus. And some would, and some wouldn't. But Jesus gives the same offer. And it's the offer of the empty tomb. Because otherwise it just feels like, oh, you've got to go out and do and do and do and do. The resurrected Lord commissions them as part of his resurrection power and story. And what the empty tomb then offers us is the following. I think if it was only that, if we only had the fact that Jesus said, okay, now go and do stuff. Because I'm resurrected, because I'm in power and glory, you must now go and do. I think some of us would still worshipfully do it. But I think many of us would remain in our doubts. Thankfully, the empty tomb of Jesus as the resurrected Son of God, it offers us so very much to help us in that journey. I think if you, if you consider some of the kind of iconic movie scenes in, in history, in movie history... Um, think kind of Titanic, think Saving Private Ryan, think Armageddon. Uh, Remember that scene in Armageddon where they need to disarm the nuke (laughs) before they can continue to dig the hole and then destroy the asteroid properly? I've got it behind, so we can briefly watch that little clip and talk about it. Remind you? Nope. <laughs> I, th- I think what <laughs> it's one of the cla- I watched it recently, which is why it's in my mind. I think what this scene and, and other kind of scenes like it have in common is that they they build to our sense of hope breaking through against despair. That's why we love these movies. It's like, oh, it breaks our souls. We're like, oh, no, are they going to do it? Of course they're going to do it. But, but you still question, are they going to do it? And then all of a sudden, boom, yes. Colonel Sharp was a skeptic. He didn't believe it could be done. But Harry Stamper gives him hope by swearing on his daughter's life that's possible. The point is, 
What softens the heart of the greatest skeptic? Hope. Hope. The empty tomb offers us many things. It offers us a church family, discipleship community to be part of, a mission to live in and for. But I think the aspect Matthew highlights most of all is the hope of the presence of Jesus through it all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Jesus made many declarations. He made many promises to his disciples whilst he was alive, didn't he? Promises that that he would always be with them and that they would always be with him. And lovely words. And you can completely understand the skepticism, though, of some of the disciples. Jesus was dead. He'd been crucified. The dream was dead. The little band of rebels with a cause was dead in the water. It's all over. Their purpose was gone. Their promises were as dead as Jesus was. But truly, truly, in John 12 it says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The promises of Jesus were that. Seeds, promises, until the day he came back and reignited their hope. I really do love how explicitly Jesus puts it in in extracts from John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also, or as well. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that you also may be where I am. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. All this I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Advocate, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give uh, to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. And now... I've told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. And on Good Friday, the the tomb was full. The hope was dead. The dream was dead. Jesus was dead. But early on the morning of the first day of the week, the fire of hope was reignited in the hearts of the disciples. If... If faith is the certainty of the things we hope for and the conviction of things unseen, as we read in Hebrews 11, then the previous lovely but seemingly empty promises of Jesus had now become a certain hope such that they could stake their lives on 
and indeed give their lives for. Comparing it to Armageddon, it's as if God the Father swears on his son's life to do all the things that he promised he would. All the earth will know the goodness and the glory of God. As sure as Jesus is alive in a new resurrection body, so too God will make all things new and fulfill every promise that was made. We are loved in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ, as we heard last week. Time and time again, we are set free in Christ. We are one with Christ. We have the life and the power of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We have the mandate and the commission from Christ. We have a family in Christ. We have eternal life in Christ. All of it. In Him, for Him, through Him. He's done it all. 1 Peter 3 says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow. Yes. Andy, can I ask, well, slowly, um, I'm giving you a heads up. Oh, guys, Andy just struggled so much with his back this morning. The way he served us and the team served us is honestly brilliant. Um, but the empty tomb asks so much of us as disciples. It really does. After all, Jesus is no mere prophet. He is no mere Bible teacher. He is the Son of God. And it is appropriate and right that we follow and obey, but it is also our joy and our pleasure to follow the one who loves us and who gave himself up for us and died in our place. But the empty tomb offers us so much. Jesus offers us so much. He offers us his very self, his presence, his resurrection life to be with us and in us. And in this life, today, now, to be true, that his presence and his power is with us and his life, but even more precious when we consider that it's true and we close our eyes in this life and we open it in the next The same resurrection power, same resurrection body, same resurrection glory is our promise and our inheritance. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.